Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. This is the second episode of Season 12. Our theme this season is Organ Donation and Transplantation. I'm very excited for today's show to feature an actor from Los Angeles who has a very unique and special story. In the first segment, we'll learn about his condition. Then we'll hear about what it was like for him to be on the transplant list and finally receive his transplants. And then we'll hear what he thinks the future holds for him regarding a book he is writing and his advocacy efforts. Today's show is entitled Receiving the Gifts of a Liver and a Heart. Jamie Alcroft has been entertaining audiences as part of the comedy duo Mac and Jamie for over 35 years. His appearances with Mac on The Tonight Show, both with Johnny Carson and Jay Leno, led to 125 original episodes of the syndicated half-hour comedy break with Mac and Jamie. Jamie is in the elite core of L.A. voice actors, providing voices for many national commercials, plus The Simpsons, Rugrats, Power Beach, Justice League, Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights, and scores of video games, most recently Gears of War 1, 2, 3, and 4, and Transformers and Halo. Jamie can be seen on YouTube by going to Mac and Jamie and Boomers on a Bench, which I did check out, and it's really funny. You all have to check it out. He has his Bachelor of Arts degree in theater from Ohio University. Jamie is married to Sarah Karahara, two-time Emmy Award-winning ice choreographer. She even choreographed Scott Hamilton's professional career for 14 years. But the reason he's on our program today is because he needed a heart and a liver transplant, and we'll be discussing that in the course of our interview. So welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Jamie. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I'm actually happy to be anywhere. <laughs> well, I can understand that after learning a little bit about your story, but why don't you tell my listeners all about your heart condition? Okay, kind of caught me by surprise. I was on an airplane traveling from Seattle to L.A., and I had what they call a widowmaker. I had a very weak wall of my left descending artery, and it exploded. It did for my grandfather at 60. It did for my uncle at 56. I was 57 at the time that this happened. Now they can predict widowmakers, but in 2005, believe it or not, as little ago as 2005, they couldn't predict them. So I had this widowmaker. I was one of four to feel symptoms because usually it just drops you dead right on the spot. So I had the symptoms of a heart attack and they made an emergency landing in Portland. And I was taken care of by having a stint placed very high up in my arterial wall and it sealed it up. And then they slapped in a pacemaker. Although they asked my permission to give me a pacemaker, they said, you are at stage four of congestive heart failure. And I said, really, what is stage five? And they said, well, that's death. And I said, wow. okay, I'll take the pacemaker. So I lived with a pacemaker for 12 years with 20% ejection fraction. So that's basically 20% of my heart function. Now, a normal person will have 50 to 80% of their EF factor. So mine was pretty low, but I functioned normally. I performed on cruise ships with Mac. I we did corporate gigs. I just conducted my life in a fairly normal way. Stairs were a bit daunting. Mm -hmm. Keeping up with my dog sometimes was a little daunting, but I did it. Then I got the symptoms last July. So that was July of 2017. 
that's when I knew something was very, very wrong and that some intervention was needed. Right. So before you had the heart attack on the airplane, they said you were in congestive heart failure then, but you didn't feel like there was anything no, wrong? No, afterwards, afterwards. Oh, afterwards. afterwards. After, okay, after so, my heart attack. Uh, it oh, took an hour okay. and a half to get me to the hospital. So okay. I missed that, what they call golden hour. So there was a lot of damage to my heart. My left heart was basically incapacitated. The right side of my heart took over for my left right. heart. So in 12 years, the right side of my heart grew to three times its normal size. Wow. To wow. compensate. It's amazing what the body does, but it, it, uh, is. it compensated for the left side, which was virtually dead. Well, why don't you tell us about the signs and symptoms you experienced the second go-round when you knew that something was wrong? I lost my appetite, and I love to cook. I lost my interest in cooking. I lost my appetite. And this happened quite rapidly within a, about a three-week time period. And then I would run out of breath when I laid down. In other words, I'd laid down and I'd run out of breath. It was crazy. I wasn't even running in my dreams. I knew something was wrong. I actually looked it up on the internet and I saw that I was experiencing symptoms of congestive heart failure. So I called my doctor, Dr. Vishvadev. I said, well, you know, what should I take? He said, you should take a drive to my office. So I did. <laughs> okay. And he gave me an ultrasound and he discovered that my heart function was now at 7%. Oh my and gosh. anywhere below 10% qualifies you for a heart transplant. So he just instructed me to have my sister, who was with me at the time. My wife was overseas choreographing an ice show on one of the Royal Caribbean ships. So my sister had flown in from New Jersey to keep an eye on me because my wife knew that I was not feeling up to my usual spunky self. Sure enough, I went into Cedars and they slapped a ultrasound on me there and they said, yep. We're going to put you in the heart transplant unit. We want to keep you here because we want you to be in the hospital if and when a transplant heart arrives. And then after being in the hospital for about two weeks, they ran some tests on me. I had a liver biopsy. And as I was going into my liver biopsy, the doctor came up and said, I'm Mr. Friedman. I'll be conducting the procedure today. I just want to warn you, there's a chance of stroke or internal bleeding. And I looked at him and I said, for me or for you? <laughs> what are we talking about here? So I did try to keep my sense of humor about the you whole thing. Did. But I discovered that I needed a new liver as well because oh, wow. in the 12 years, my heart had beat up on my liver to such an extent that I had what they called heart-induced cirrhosis. So I had scarring on my liver, which means that it would never have functioned properly had I stayed with the old one. I was a candidate for a heart and liver at that point. Wow. Okay. So you were a candidate for a heart and a liver. Mm-hmm. And it has to come from the same person. To reduce rejection? Yes. Yes. Because okay. that heart and that liver that I have now are used to working together. Mm-hmm. Heck, it was crazy when I found out that I needed a new liver as well. They said, well, you're 68. You're three years over the age limit. Because 65 is the cutoff for a dual transplant. So we're going to have to present your case in front of the board. Well, I immediately got online and found out that Mayo Clinic and UCLA have cutoffs of 70. So I would have been eligible for a dual transplant at either of those hospitals. 
So next time my teams came in, I had a heart team and a liver team, about five or six doctors in each team. And they double checked each other. They said they've never made an exception before. So they basically started packing me up. They started disconnecting my IVs. And then Friday, August 4th came along and the doctors presented my case in front of the board of 30 surgeons and doctors and social workers and psychiatrists, et cetera. They made an exception in my case. One of the doctors told me it was because of my attitude. Wow. That just shows the importance of keeping that sense of humor and having a good attitude, doesn't it? Yeah. Heck, I mean, I was doing four or five shows a day. (laughs) (laughs) It paid off. Yeah. It just was mostly for me. People say, why are you always on? Why do you think you have to entertain? I said, I don't think I have to entertain you. Trust me, I'm entertaining myself. I'm bored. I'm just keeping myself entertained. That was the case in the hospital. I was keeping myself entertained. Everything I saw seemed funny to me and seemed unusual. It was certainly an experience that I'd never been through before in my life. Everything was new. Even though it wasn't sparkly and fun, it was new enough for me to find humor in it and find the absurdity in what I was living through. I was waiting for someone else to pass away so that I could live. That's quite something to deal with. Absolutely. Texas Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart, and he said, no, Dad, I've had enough. Give it to someone who's worthy. My father promised me a golden dress to twirl in. He held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go. Whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Before the break, Jamie, you were telling us how you are an exception to the rule, and it seems like that's the case over and over in your life. You are the exception to the rule in that your father and your grandfather passed away from this same kind of heart problem, and here you have been able to live through it, live past it, and then you were an exception because normally they wouldn't give somebody two organs when they are your age, but your attitude helped you to also be an exception in that area. I want to talk to you now about what it was like for you to be in the hospital for about two months before you got that call. Or I don't know if they called you or just came into your room, but... Yes, they called me. Did they call you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what was yes, it like to wait for two months like that in a holding pattern? What was it like? It was waiting to live. I was dying. My heart was failing, and each day it got worse, and each day I got closer to being put on a machine to keep me alive until my heart arrived. I did have volunteers who had had heart transplants come in and tell me their stories, which was odd. I know they were trying to make me feel better, but this was really my story, and I knew it was going to be very unique. Some people had waited for a year and a half for a heart and liver. 
or even a heart. Some people had waited six months. So I was prepared to wait as long as I had to wait. I busied myself by writing a book. I started off on posts on Facebook. I would write every day and I would call it the Tin Man Diaries. I got a following on Facebook. God forbid I would skip a day or two because I did. And you get overwhelmed with the procedures. I wrote in the book that they're so attentive that they woke me up three times last night to ask me if I needed a sleeping pill. (laughs) (laughs) They were very attentive. And so that took up a lot of my time. And writing took up a lot of my time. And it was actually quite joyful because I was waiting for a new heart and liver, which was a remarkable experience. And I tried to take advantage of that remarkable experience by looking at the remarkable perspective. Even though I was dying at the time, I was given the gift of hope. And I don't think I'd ever been given anything quite that magnanimous before in terms of something to think about and something to wait for. The doctors did not want me to go home, like I said. They wanted me to be an elevator ride away from that new heart and liver. And the amazing thing is, is the surgeons, my liver team and my heart team, when the heart and liver became available, actually flew up to Northern California to vet it. So the surgical team that puts it in your body removes it from the body of the deceased. And they're responsible for it from procurement to placement. Wow. So they're very, very attentive about that. And I was impressed. I was impressed. Being in a holding pattern for two months really wasn't that bad compared to what other people have had to go through. Yeah, I've talked to people who have waited for over a year for a heart. And I would think that getting a heart and a liver would potentially take even longer. Not necessarily. Because if the heart's there and it's good and it's functioning, typically the liver is good and it's functioning as well. I had what they call a high-risk liver My heart wasn't because the donor had been checked out by a cardiologist or a primary physician at one point, but his liver had never been tested for hepatitis or anything like that. So I was told it was a high-risk liver because they had no medical records on it, and I chose to take it. I chose to take the chance because, frankly, even though other people had waited a year, a year and a half, two months was quite sufficient, thank you to be waiting and I was ready to go for it. Right, right. That's pretty amazing. It sounds to me like you became really philosophical during those two months. Yes, of course. I think anything that happens in your life, you process and become philosophical about. It's your way of coping. It's one's way of rationalizing whatever it is you're going through, whether it be good or bad or something as terrifying as my trip to Oz, as I call it, because I was the Tin Man. My book's called The Tin Man Diaries, and I was the Tin Man waiting for a heart. Well, what would you tell somebody who is in the position you were then? Now they're sitting in a hospital room, and they're waiting and waiting. What kind of advice would you give them? Well, I don't know whether it's advice as much as it is perspective, which certainly could be translated to advice for people. All my life, and I've taught my children this too, I have never fretted or worried or stressed out 
about something I didn't have control over. Now, when I was feeling the symptoms of congestive heart failure, the having to sleep in a chair, sitting up because I ran out of breath when I laid down, uh, losing my appetite, not being able to go up a flight of stairs within 15 minutes. I had to stop two or three times on a single flight of stairs. So all those symptoms indicated to me that I was getting worse. So I took action and I went to my doctor. I called my doctor. I took action. When my doctor told me I needed a heart transplant, I let it go because it was out of my hands. It was out of my control. That was something that fate and destiny was going to dictate. And for me to worry or stress or be concerned about it, cry or fret or do any of those things that people are expected to do upon receiving bad news, I just let it go. It's something I didn't have control over. And then when I got the heart and liver and I had control over my recuperative process, you know, I took action. Right. I I did something about it. Tell us about receiving that phone call. Yay. (laughs) It was a little better than receiving your call today. It was just terrific. An old friend of mine who owned a theater in Key West when I was uh, performing down there she was visiting me because her daughter had had a grandchild and her daughter lived in LA and she was in the room when I got the phone call. And so I was able to share it with her. I was quite relieved yet. I must tell you, Anna, I was cautious as well because those people who had received hearts who visited me and shared their stories with me, some of them had gone down to the OR and not received their heart or liver because it wasn't just right. Yeah. And that's the way Cedar sinai does it. Mm-hmm. One guy, bless his heart, had been put to sleep eight times. <gasps> oh, my God. And woke up eight times with no heart or liver. Oh, wow. Because it wasn't a good fit. It has to be a good fit. Wow. It's guesswork when they procure the organs, uh, in my case, up in Northern California. Again, I had no control. Right. So I didn't freak out. I didn't say, okay, this is it, baby. I said, this might be it. Mm -hmm. And going in with that attitude saved me. And and then when I awoke, I actually knew I had received a heart and liver because of the dream or hallucination I had while I was under the anesthesia. I thought it was a video that they'd showed me before they put me under. And actually, when I woke up, I said to the doctor, can I have a copy of that video that you showed me? And he said, what video was that? And I described it to him. He said, no, you can't have a copy of that because it doesn't exist. Wow. Wow. That was all in your head. I saw an aerial view of a temple, a Greco-Roman temple that was sandy colored and at the top of the temple at the altar, a woman sat and she said, James B. Alcroft Jr. I said, yes. She said, are you ready to receive your heart and liver? I said, yes. And just then a, I can only describe it as a, also the sepia, a cuttlefish bone. You know the cuttlefish bone that hangs in a parakeet's cage? Yes. That they sharpen their beaks on? Uh-huh. 
it was horizontal and it was a white cuttlefish bone. And every time she spoke, a orange computer generated ring appeared over the cuttlefish bone. And she said, breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. And I did. And an orange ring appeared. She said again, I did. Another orange ring appeared. And I kept breathing in through my nose and out through my mouth as instructed. She said, great, you're doing great. You're doing just fine. And when the cuttlefish bone was filled with orange rings, it collapsed into a image of me. And it was me and my body lying there. And she said, you have now received your new heart and liver. Thank you. And I said, thank you. And that was my hallucination. And I really thought that was a video that they'd showed me. Wow. Yeah. So I will always have that in my heart and my mind and uh, treasure that image of that video and that, that experience that I had, whether it be real or not. Frankly, what I think it was is I think it was the nurse talking me off of the ventilator and getting me to breathe on my own. But I kind of lean towards it being more mystical than that. Yeah, it sounds more mystical than that to me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Jamie, I think it's interesting that you told us you started writing your book by the Facebook post that you were creating. Tell us a little bit more about your book, because I have a feeling it's gone past that now. Yes, it's gone way past that. Uh, It's now a book of about 250 pages. Wow. Frankly, I had a hard time separating reality from hallucination after I received the heart and liver because they had me on so much morphine to quell the pain. And believe me, my book is funny, but whoever said laughter is the best medicine has never had a morphine drip. I guarantee you that. Okay. Because the morphine, oh my gosh, the first four days, I believe I was asleep Mm -hmm. in a medically induced coma. Right because the pain is even too much for the morphine in those first few days. And then after four days, I woke up and my family was around me when I woke up and I saw them. I think I saw them, but in reality now I know I saw them. And I said, am I alive? And they said, yes, daddy, you know, yeah, honey, you know, you're alive. And I started yelling, konnichiwa, baby. I don't know why. But I just was going, Konnichiwa, baby! Oh, yeah! Konnichiwa, baby! And in my mind, I was standing on a balcony shouting out to a pool area where people were swimming in a pool. My family videotaped me doing this, waking up. Oh, wow. And in fact, I was laying in bed 
barely slurring out the words, Konnichiwa, baby. But in my mind, I was very precise and loud, and I was projecting. And, <laughs> and when I watched the tape, I was like slurring, you know, Konnichiwa, baby. <laughs> So what I've done with the book is I've tried to include all of that recovery period and all the things I can remember, all the things the doctors said to me, the nurses said to me, the feelings I had, my experience with a doctor coming in and telling me he was going to interrogate my pacemaker. <laughs> okay. It, you know, and all I could think of is, where were you on the evening of June 4th, 1943? <laughs> And don't try to leave town, Bugsy, because we know where you are, you know, <laughs> the typical interrogation. Also in my book, I take you back. I take you back to my childhood and I take you back to having gone to school in England for three years, living in Colorado and being a silversmith and being a DJ in Key West, Florida, and, and all the experiences I've had managing a symphony orchestra. It all is in the book. And it all relates to the flashbacks I had when I was recovering. And they were many, many. That's basically what the book is. I don't have a publisher for it yet. Frankly, I don't know whether to self-publish or to go with a publisher. But I'm doing a TEDx talk in June to promote donorship. And I will use the book there. I'll have enough published there to, to hand out some copies or even maybe sell copies at that point. I don't know. Wow, so the book is complete. As far as I'm concerned, it is. Every time I pick it up, I tweak it. Mm -hmm. So there's a point at which, with art, you have to set it down and say, I'm finished. Yes. Yeah. As a writer myself, I can say how hard that is. But yes, you do get to that point and... It's very difficult. It's very yes. difficult. I don't know about you. you. I to. try to be a perfectionist. Mm. I don't try to be. It's just my nature to be a perfectionist. Yeah. And I'm my yeah. own worst I, enemy. I think that's commendable. <laughs> no, but you're your own mm -hmm. worst enemy because it's never going to be perfect. And it doesn't necessarily no. have to be perfect in order to help someone. And it sounds like that's what you're trying to do with your books. Exactly. My criteria is it has to be accessible. Mm -hmm. It has to be readable and accessible. I'm basically taking my readers on a ride in my car and they're going to have to want to stay in my car for the ride. So I do try to use some of the classic composition skills that I've learned over the years to hold on to the reader because I do want the reader to stay there because I think what's coming next is important for them. Right. Well, and so you're doing a TEDx talk to promote organ donation. What other kind of advocacy efforts are you involved in? Well, that's my main thrust right now. That's the uh, first week in June. What I've done is I've contacted the local donor organization in Southern California. I've done a lot of research. I know that 22 people a day die waiting for organs that are not available. I know that our organ donorship numbers in this country are abysmal compared to some of the European countries. They're shameful and people just don't think about it. I ask people everywhere. I was in the Verizon store today and I asked the guy, are you a donor? He said, oh, geez, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Am I? You know, I hadn't thought about that. Mm. And it's amazing how many people don't think about it. Mm -hmm. But 8,000 people a year die waiting for organs. It's so easy 
to sign up. And, and look, or a donorship's a very passive procedure. You really don't know what's going on. It's a decision you make before you depart. But upon your death, you can give life. It's a legacy. I mean, everybody wants to accomplish something in this life. Everybody, I think everybody wants to leave something behind, a legacy. And to me, donorship has always been, even before I was in this situation, a legacy, something that I'm going to leave behind. In my TEDx talk, I'm going to try to concentrate more on the recipients and less on the donors. Because the donors have made their decision. Their death is out of my hands. It's out of my control. What I can control is providing life for someone else when I pass. So that's part of my legacy. I'd like to leave more, of course, to my children and my wife. But that's a major part of my legacy in life is to leave that, to leave life when I depart. I was speaking in front of 20,000 nurses in Denver in October. And I don't have any other dates booked, but I hope that this TEDx talk, when it goes viral and hits YouTube, will encourage people to bring me on. I've got one legacy. They're going to be in the lobby. They're a donorship organization here. And Donate Life is a donorship organization here. And they're both going to have tables in the lobby, and they'll be able to sign up people in 90 seconds. So if anybody in my audience has not become a donor yet, they can become a donor in 90 seconds as they leave my TEDx talk. I love it. That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, I just have one more quick question for you, and that is sure. most people don't really know anything about transplants. And actually, if you talk to them, they think that if you get a transplant, that means that you're fixed and that everything is fine now. Kind of like the bionic man, you're better than ever. Mm-hmm. What would you tell mm-hmm. them about what it's like for life after receiving a transplant? In fact, their life will be better than it was before. They needed a transplant because they were ill. It could only be cured by a replacement part. Mm -hmm. Right. So, like, I have a 46-year-old heart. That's all I know about my donor. He was from Northern California, and he was 46. The donor's family has the option of contacting me, but they did not. That's something that I've let go of, but I'm thankful to him every day for the life I'm living and the opportunities I'm given. I was able to see my daughter on Jimmy Kimmel last night because I have a heart and I'm alive. I'm going to be able to see my other daughter be married in June because I have a heart and a liver and I'm alive. Now, you have to take anti-rejection drugs for the rest of your life. You have to be very careful about infection for the rest of your life. But that's a small price to pay for life. It really is. And they told me that they were afraid of rejection, and this was their main concern. I told them I'd been an actor and a comedian for 40 years. I thrived on rejection. (laughs) I'm used to it. (laughs) Every audition. Yeah, yeah. I'm facing rejection, so I can deal with that. Yeah, I think their life's going to be better. I don't mind taking those 16 pills every morning and 10 at night. I don't mind that. That's a small sacrifice to make. To wear a mask at a large gathering, it's a small price to pay. Well, it has been an honor to talk to you today, Jamie. 
It's been an honor to talk to you today, Anna. It's really been enlightening. I really enjoyed talking to you because I was able to express things that I hadn't really thought about or verbalized before. Well, I think you've given our listeners something to think about, too. And we even had some laughter in this show, which I think is really important. That's key. Absolutely. And I'll have to send you a copy of my book. You'll have lots of laughs in that. <laughs> yes. You know, that why great. not? Why not? Absolutely. Why not? If you, you're given the opportunity to have a heart and liver transplant, make the most of it. Don't bemoan the fact that you're getting it. Rejoice in the fact. It's a glorious day. And that's a glorious way for us to end this episode. Thanks for listening today, friends. Please subscribe to our program on iTunes. And remember, my friends, you are not. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.